Let's uh, bow our hearts with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for, again, the height, the width, and the depth of the love of God for the saints. We come today, uh, Father, not seeking to figure out how we can uh, pull ourselves up to you, but rather with the recognition that you have reached down to us. In the person of Jesus Christ and also in your word where you've given us scripture which is capable for equipping us for every good work and equipping us for all matters of faith and practice. So as we get into your word today, we do ask for the illuminating ministry of the Holy Spirit where we might be taught the deeper things of God. And we're just going to pause for just a moment, Lord, um, to do personal business with you just in case uh, unconfessed sin exists in our lives, which does not um, change our position, but it can hinder our fellowship with you thereby inhibiting our ability to receive from your word. Would you pray, Lord, that you you would be with Sugarland Bible Church today and all of its undertakings um, from beginning to end? We do pray that people would leave here um, somehow eternally impacted, either getting saved or being taught correctly, being corrected, being encouraged. We just invite your spirit to do that work today in our hearts and lives as we gather here and also online. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said... Well, good morning, everybody. If you could take your Bibles and open them to Isaiah chapter 17. And um, appreciate Pastor Jim, uh, not yesterday, last week, uh, doing teaching as I was with my family in California. You guys have heard of California, right? Someone said we should build the wall and build it right on the border of California. Not the ocean part, but the... And I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't I? Um, Isaiah chapter 17, and we're actually at the tail end of our series on the Middle East meltdown which was basically a verse-by-verse look of Ezekiel 36 through 39. And when we got to the end of that verse-by-verse teaching, I invited people to submit questions. So one of the major questions that people asked dealt deal with what today are being called the now prophecies. So the question is, what is your understanding of the first prophecies, the now prophecies, or the next prophecies? So this is um, kind of a new development. It's a collection of prophecies that people allegedly are seeing in the Bible. And these are supposed prophecies that are supposed to be fulfilled um, either concurrently before the Gog-Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39, or many argue that they're going to be fulfilled before the Gog and Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And some even argue that they're being fulfilled right now. So those prophecies consist of the prophecies of Elam against Elam, uh, against Damascus, and also the so-called Psalm 83 war. So since there was so much, um, so many questions that came in related to this topic, I wanted to 
conclude our Middle East meltdown study by giving you what I would consider to be more of a biblical understanding of the so-called now, next, or near prophecies. Um, As I mentioned before, Dr. Mark Hitchcock wrote a book called Showdown with Iran, which I'll recommend to you. And in Appendix 1 and Appendix 2, at the end of his book, he deals exegetically with these so-called now, near, or next prophecies. So I'm relying, you know, to a very large extent on what he has written in those two appendices. So if you're wondering, you know, where is Andy getting this information? Are his quotes right? Is he representing people fairly? Um, that's the source I'll send you to. And I like to sort of um, introduce this material with this quote that I've given to you before from Charles Ryrie. Charles Ryrie says, quote, eschatology, that's the study of the end, uh, eschatos end, ology, study, that's the topic that we're dealing with here. Eschatology seems to suffer at the hands of both its friends and its foes. Those who play it down usually avoid assigning specific meaning to texts, prophetic texts. Those who play it up often assign too much. So when you get into the subject of eschatology, you'll you'll automatically see two forces at work. Um, those are two extremes that I've, I try very hard to stay out of. The first extreme is people that just say, well, this isn't literal. You know, Israel doesn't mean Israel. Um, uh, and so they deliteralize prophecy. And so you'll notice in most of the teachings that we've done here on this subject, we're reacting against that group. Uh, those people basically end up in the camp of uh, replacement theology, kingdom now theology. They end up in the camp of anti-pre-tribulational rapturists. And it's basically a problem that they have, which is they just won't take prophecy literally the way you would take any other section of the Bible literally. However, Ryrie is very clear here that there's another group of people that cause the whole subject of eschatology to be injured, and that's people who read too much into passages. You know, people that will assign dates for the Lord's return, uh, people that will write books on how the Antichrist, you know, is living next door, you know, these kind of things. And um, basically what they're doing is they're very well-intentioned people, but they have a tendency to take things in the Bible, which the Bible doesn't clearly say, and they have a tendency to hype it so that it becomes very, very sensationalistic. So when we deal with the now prophecies, the next prophecies, or the near prophecies, we're not dealing with the replacement theologians we're dealing with that second group of people that are well-intentioned, but they have a tendency to be overly speculative, overly sensationalistic. So it, the now prophecies or the next prophecies or the near prophecies, first of all, dealt with prophecies related to Elam. Jeremiah 41 and Ezekiel 32. And I tried to show you the last time I was with you that the prophecies concerning Elam have already been fulfilled. And so since they've already been fulfilled, there's no reason to fit Elam into an end time scenario. Elam, of course, is Persia. Persia is Iran. And so if you want to understand Iran's role in the end time scenario, you don't go to Jeremiah 49 and you don't go to Ezekiel 32. Um, although the very end of Jeremiah 49 predicts Elam's conversion in the end. 
other than that single verse at the end, everything else in Jeremiah 49 and everything concerning Ezekiel 32 concerning Elam has already been fulfilled. The proponents of the now prophecies, next prophecies, or near prophecies are trying to say, no, that's not true. Those prophetic texts are in play right now. I am arguing here that they are not in play. In fact, they're a distraction. What is in play in terms of stage setting is Ezekiel 38 and 39. So review the prior lesson that we did to get our teachings on that. Then there is a second area of the now prophecies, the near prophecies, the next prophecies, allegedly, and these have to do with the prophecies of Damascus, the destruction of Damascus. So this is very, very big in prophecy circles, and that's why I had you open up to Isaiah 17. And then there's more information about the destruction of Damascus in Jeremiah 49. So why is uh, Damascus such a big deal in prophecy circles? Because Damascus, as you can see from the map, is located in Syria. Syria is on Israel's northern border. In fact, the only thing separating the nation of Israel from Syria is the Golan Heights, which is a mountainous buffer zone. And Essentially, what has happened in Syria in our time period most recently is a group that I call the Big Three, Iran, Russia, and Turkey, all three of which, as we've explained in our series, are going to invade Israel in the last days, Ezekiel 38 and 39. Well, what you discover when you read the headlines is all three of them, the Big Three, are actually located or have a beachhead uh, in Syria. And so the current um, leadership politically of Syria is largely a puppet, a puppet regime largely being influenced by the big three, Turkey, Russia, and Iran. And when you read the headlines, um, you see all of the time the presence of the big three in Syria. So here's one such headline. It says Putin of Russia is going to meet Erdogan of Turkey and Rossi of Iran in Iran. And in fact, the big three recently had a meeting not just in Iran, but in Tehran of Iran. And what were they there to discuss? They were there to discuss their presence in Syria. So this becomes a very, very exciting headline. And from that headline, what you'll discover is people developing a prophetic scenario. And this is why I had you open up to Isaiah chapter 17, uh, verses 1 and 2. Because people now are treating this prophecy concerning the destruction of Damascus in Syria as something that is imminent and it's about to happen at any moment. And people that promote the now prophecies, the near prophecies, or the next prophecies um, are always talking now about Damascus in Syria. So Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 says, The oracle concerning Damascus... Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city. Well, that's exciting, right? So any second Damascus is about to be destroyed. Damascus, allegedly, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city, and it will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks to lie down, and there will be no one to frighten them. Close quote. So basically what people are saying is at any second, the nation of Israel perhaps is going to take out Damascus. It's going to take out the city of Damascus in Syria. The big three, 
Russia, Iran, and Turkey won't like that. And so they will end up invading the nation of Israel uh, as Ezekiel 38 and 39 calls for. So what people are saying is, and I've heard prophecy teachers say this over and over again, um, in fact, the first time I heard this was in Canada where an extremely popular prophecy teacher said the destruction of Damascus is imminent and the destruction of Damascus is going to be the fuse which ignites the Gog-Magog invasion. And the way he presented it was um, this is not a theory, this is not an option, this is a thus saith the Lord. This is exactly the way it's going to happen. And after all, the Bible supports it because it says there in Isaiah 17 verses 1 and 2 that God says he's about to remove Damascus from being a city. So the whole scenario that they're portraying doesn't make sense just with Ezekiel 38 and 39. As we've studied Ezekiel 38 and 39, you also have to factor in this Isaiah 17 passage. So let me give you some examples of people that teach this, and this is a little bit painful for me to do because a lot of these guys I agree with on so many things. But what they're doing, in my opinion, is they're pushing the envelope on Isaiah 17 and trying to make Isaiah 17 say something that it really isn't saying in order to in order to build their very exciting prophetic scenario. So Joel Rosenberg, a very popular prophecy writer, says, quote, according to all major translations, the meaning of the text is clear. Now, when they say clear, that means you can't disagree with it because everybody knows this is a prophecy about to happen. He says, the prophecy concerns the city of Damascus. The passage is a prophecy concerning the future of Damascus. Damascus will be utterly destroyed. Damascus will no longer be a livable, inhabitable city. Uh, Damascus will lie in ruins. And he goes on and says this concerning Damascus. When viewed together, we can say the following about the prophecies concerning Damascus in Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. Now we're going to look at Jeremiah 49 down the road. Right now we're just focused on Isaiah 17. Which of the two prophecies, Isaiah 17 is probably the most popular one used. When viewed together, Joel Rosenberg says, we can say the following about the prophecies concerning Damascus found in Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49. First, the prophecies refer to a a divine judgment by God against the city of Damascus. Second, the prophecies refer to the utter catastrophic destruction of Damascus. Now, so far I agree with him. Because what I'm going to try to show you is this prophecy already happened. This prophecy happened 700 years before Jesus was born. But Joel Rosenberg and company are putting it into the future to argue that the imminent destruction of Damascus by Israel is going to light the fuse concerning the Gog-Magog invasion. Three, both, and here's where I start to disagree, both, Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 are eschatological prophecies referring to end times events that have yet to occur. Now we have a disagreement because Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 are very, very different than Ezekiel 38 and 39 because Ezekiel 38 and 39 is yet future. Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 have already happened. And he gives some beliefs as to why he thinks these prophecies are eschatological. He says, Isaiah's prophecy was given to him in 715 B.C., well after the conquering of Damascus in 732 by Tiglath-Pileser, 
who is Tiglath Pileser? Say that five times fast. Um, he was basically an Assyrian king that had a beachhead, obviously, in Damascus. And in 732 uh, B.C., Tiglath-Pileser fulfilled Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. In other words, Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, when properly interpreted, was fulfilled 700 years before Jesus was born. Joel Rosenberg and others are trying to say, no, this is about to be fulfilled any second. And one of the arguments that he gives is he says Isaiah's prophecies was given to him in 715 B.C. So if Isaiah's prophecies was given to him in 715 B.C., how could it be a prophecy about the destruction of Damascus at the hands of Tiglath-Pileser 15, 16, 17 years earlier in 732 B.C.? Now, on C, sub one there, I'm going to show you that he's distorting what the Bible says. The Bible nowhere says that Isaiah's prophecies, all of them, were given in 715 B.C. More on that later. He says, sub-point two there, likewise, Jeremiah's ministry occurred in 626 B.C. And 586 B.C., long after Tiglath-Pileser conquered Damascus in 732 B.C. Now, that's true. But Jeremiah is talking about something different. More on that later. Rosenberg goes on and he says, Damascus has certainly been attacked, conquered, and burned at various points in history, including biblical history, but it is clear that the prophecies of Isaiah 17 and Jeremiah 49 have not been fulfilled. Damascus is, after all, one of the oldest continuously inhabited cities on the planet. But what he's trying to say is we have a Damascus today. So obviously Isaiah 17 was never fulfilled. It must be something yet future. He gives you a little wiggle room in his scenario. He says, we cannot be certain when these judgments will happen and when the prophecies will be fulfilled. They could come to pass before, during, or after the war of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 and 39, before, during, or after the rapture. That's why everybody's focused on this. As Joel Rosenberg says, this could happen before the rapture. So everybody's always now looking at their headlines saying, okay, any minute is the Israelis are going to take out Syria in fulfillment of Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. And by the way, if the Israelis take out Syria, interesting, but it has nothing to do with Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. Um, I, I don't really have a problem with them giving possibilities My problem is with them saying this has to happen to fulfill God's prophetic word. Now we have a problem because you're forcing the Bible into a scenario that the Bible itself doesn't support. Um, One of the great lessons to learn when you study prophecy is it's okay to look at current events. On our pastor's point of view show, we look at current events constantly. But the temptation is to take the current events and read them back into the Bible. When you read current events back into the Bible, you're no longer being a faithful interpreter or exegete of the biblical text. You're doing what's called eisegesis, reading into the Bible something that really isn't there. And when you do that, you alter the meaning of God's word. And you're just as guilty of a distortion of divine truth as is any replacement theologian who allegorizes it away. So we have this constant tension between speculation and allegorization. Two extremes, two ditches that you want to stay out of. He goes on and he says this could happen before or during the tribulation 
the text simply do not say so, so we cannot be definitive. So he's saying, you know, this could happen at any moment because it's an eschatological text. He goes on there with letter G, and he says it's possible that the prophecies could come to pass in the not-too-distant future. But they will certainly come to pass at some point before the second coming of Christ or the day of the Lord. Now, if you stand up in front of an audience and you tell them at any minute Israel is going to take out Damascus in fulfillment of Isaiah 17, and that's something that's going to happen before the Ezekiel 38 and 39 war, believe me, you'll have no shortage of people that want to listen to what you have to say. It's... um, Sort of like what Paul predicted in the last days. They would assemble teachers where the teacher would tell people what their itching ears want to hear. I mean, this sells. This produces excitement. Nobody wants to come to my conference where I'm going to tell you that this already happened 700 years before Christ was born. Who would want to hear that? But you see, at the end of the day, my conscience is clean because I've been faithful to what God says. I'm not aiming or catering my ministry according to what excites people. And this is the basic problem that I'm having with these so-called now, near, or next prophecies. Uh, here's another author. Um, I bought some of his books online. I generally like him. I get his newsletter sent to my email inbox. A lot of what he says I agree with, but he's on this Damascus kick. And uh, this particular writer says, In the last days, the Bible tells us of a horrible series of events that will take place in the lands of Israel and Syria. One of those is the disappearance of Damascus as one of the premier cities of the world. In the very near future, see how exciting that is? In the very near future, Damascus, again, will play a major role in human events. The prophet Isaiah provides us with God's commentary on a future conflict between Damascus and Israel. And in so doing, he reveals certain principles that have been partially fulfilled in the past. However, the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah 17 remains future. There's my point of disagreement. The current existence of Damascus, which will one day cease to be a city, as well as the historical absence of the coalition of nations prophesied to attack Israel and be destroyed by God, is proof that Isaiah 17 prophesies events yet future. So what's happening is all of these guys are putting the destruction of Damascus into the future. It's going to be fulfilled at any moment. Joel Rosenberg says Isaiah 13 to Isaiah 24. Now what is Isaiah 13 through 24? In fact, if I can be so bold, I'll correct him on the second chapter that he has there. It's actually Isaiah 17 through 23. That is um, a section called Isaiah's Oracles Against the Nations. And what Rosenberg is trying to argue is all of those prophecies are yet future. Now, some of them, as I'll show you, are future, but most of them, including the prophecies about Elam and including the prophecies about Damascus, have already been fulfilled. This is what's called the table of nations. Isaiah 13 through 23, Isaiah making predictions about various Gentile nations, enemies of Israel. So he says in Isaiah 13 through 24, the Lord speaks directly to the future Gentile nations near or surrounding Israel. The prophecies are also end time matters. That is, they are events that will take place just before the tribulation, so it could happen at any second, or during the tribulation, and come to complete fulfillment 
on or about the day of the Lord, the literal, physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know these are end-time prophecies and not near prophecies that could take place in Isaiah's lifetime or even in the generation that would immediately follow because of the numerous eschatological references that Isaiah makes. So the table of nations is totally future according to Rosenberg's position. And therefore, a lot of these prophecies, like Isaiah 17, are about to happen at any minute. And in fact, at any minute, as I said before, Israel is going to take out Damascus in fulfillment of Isaiah 17. And that becomes the fuse that will ignite Ezekiel 38 and 39. So their point is, oh, do you think Ezekiel 38 and 39 is a complete understanding of the Middle East? You have to have this other perspective given through the supposed near prophecies or next prophecies. And what we're trying to argue here is Ezekiel 38 and 39 is complete. These other prophecies that they're pointing to have already transpired. And if these prophecies that they're pointing to have already transpired, then it destroys their scenario of Damascus is about to be made a ruinous heap, which is the fuse that is going to ignite the Ezekiel 38 and 39 um, invasion. So we're focused here on Isaiah 17. And Rosenberg is very aggressive here. He says chapters 13 through 23 of Isaiah are yet future. And let me show you why I don't think that's true. Look at, for example, Isaiah 64, excuse me, Isaiah 16 and verse 14. See, what is Rosenberg saying? He's saying Isaiah 13 through 23 are totally future. Some of it's future, but most of it is past. How do I know that? Look at Isaiah 16, verse 14. But now the Lord speaks, saying, within three years. Three years of what? Three years of when God gave the prophet to Isaiah. Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with his great population and his remnant will be very small and impotent. God is saying, I'm about to reduce Moab and I'm going to do it in the next three years. In your lifetime, Isaiah. So Isaiah 16 and verse 14 completely goes against what Rosenberg just said that the table of nations is all future. So there are obviously some prophecies in the table of nations that have already happened. I'm going to argue that Damascus is one of that lot. Notice, uh, if you will, Isaiah 21 and verse 16. For thus the Lord said to me in a year as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate. God is saying, I'm going to bring down Kedar. And by the way, you don't have to wait till the tribulation period for that to happen. I'm going to do it next year. Um, beyond that, whenever you study a passage of the Bible like Isaiah 17, which is where everyone is focused on this prophetic scenario that prophecy teachers are promoting, you always have to look at the surrounding context. And that's true with any passage of the Bible you look at. You want to look at any passage of the Bible, you examine the surrounding context. That's why we at Sugarland Bible Church take so long going through various books of the Bible. Because unless you're meticulously working through it verse by verse in context, you can make the verses say whatever you want them to say. Our approach to ministry here is very, very different than what you get 
at your typical evangelical church today, three points in a poem. And the points are sort of loosely related to the Bible, but because the pastors are not taking the time in the pulpit to develop the context of those passages, you don't really see if they're using them correctly or not. And it's the same with prophecy. You have to look at the surrounding context. So back to Isaiah 16, verse 14. Doesn't Isaiah 16 come before Isaiah 17? Can I get an amen on that? And if you look at Isaiah 16, verse 14, we just looked at it. It says, but now the Lord speaks, saying, within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded. So there's a prophecy right before Isaiah 17 that indicates that the glory of Moab is going to come down in three years. Look, for example, at Isaiah 17, verses 12 through 14. Verses 12 through 14 of Isaiah 17 come after verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 17, right? And it says, Alas, the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling of the nations, who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. The nations will rumble on like the rumbling of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased in the mountains before the wind or the whirling dust before a gale. At evening time, behold, there is terror. Before morning, they are no more. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. Now, commentator after commentator after commentator. In fact, in your study Bible, you might have notes in the margins that people put there, giving you cross-references. They will tell you that verses 12 through 14 of Isaiah 17 already happened. It already happened when one angel of the Lord killed 185,000. Think about that. One angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, killed 185,000 Assyrians. So I don't have to wait around for the tribulation period for Isaiah 17, 12 through 14 to be fulfilled. That's a prophecy that's already happened. In fact, when, when was it fulfilled? It was fulfilled not long after it was given in Isaiah 37, verse 36, which says the angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The fulfillment of that prophecy is also found in 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 35, which says the angel of the Lord went and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. So Dr. Mark Hitchcock says, okay, before we get into Isaiah 17 verses 1 and 2, let's just look at the surrounding context. Isaiah 16, verse 14, which precedes chapter 17, has already been fulfilled because it says it's going to be fulfilled within three years. Isaiah 17, verses 12 through 14, was most likely fulfilled. It's a prophecy of the destruction of the Assyrian army in one night. And that was already fulfilled probably 30 years later in 701 B.C. So Mark Hitchcock just asks a question here. And even if you don't agree with my conclusions, that's fine. At least you can see my method. Because this is a method that you use when you study any part of the Bible. And if you don't want to do this, what you're subjected to is a bunch of people with the gift of gab making the Bible sound any way they want. Because the devil quotes the Bible, right? He just doesn't quote it in context. I hope you're not impressed with people that quote the Bible. Because if you're impressed with that, you've got to be impressed with Satan. Because, man, he's got some scriptures down. What you have to be impressed by is are the scriptures that they're using accurate. And you have to always be on the defense concerning this because Satan 
John 8:44 is the father of lies. I mean, there's nothing more that Satan would like than to lodge into your mind something that you think God said, but actually, contextually, God never said that. And that's sort of why I'm reacting the way I'm doing here against these now, next, or near prophecies. So Mark Hitchcock in his book says, since the context before Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 is a near future fulfillment, and the context after it is also a near fulfillment, it would be strange for Isaiah 17 to make a distant fulfillment in the end times. Isaiah 16, verse 14, is the prophecy of Moab's destruction fulfilled within three years. Isaiah 17, 1 through 11, is the prophecy of the destruction of Damascus, which we're going to look at in just a minute. But that's followed by Isaiah 17, 12 through 14, which is a prophecy of the destruction of the army in one night, fulfilled about 30 years later in 701 B.C., So if chapter 16 already happened and the end of chapter 17 already happened, it's very, very strange to take verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 17 and put it totally in the future to to build a prophetic scenario that is tantalizing to the ears. That's where we're having a problem. So with all of that being said, let's look at Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. What exactly do we do with this? The prophecy, as you'll remember, says this, the the oracle concerning Damascus. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and it will become a fallen ruin. The cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be flocks to lie down and there will be none to frighten them. What I'm going to say here is this prophecy happened already. In 732 B.C., when Damascus was destroyed by Tigalith Pileser of Assyria. And this is how dispensationalists, our camp, has traditionally understood this prophecy. You can't get a more stable of a name out there than Warren Wearsby. And notice what Warren Wearsby says about Isaiah 17, 1 and 2. He says, quote, in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, he, that's the Lord, warned Damascus, the capital of Aram, or Syria, that the city would be taken by the enemy. This occurred when the Assyrians conquered Aram in 732 B.C., Following their usual custom, the Assyrians deported many of the citizens which left the land and the cities deserted. So that's how I've always understood Isaiah 17, walking in the tradition of some of the traditional dispensationalists, and to to hear now in conference circles that this is something about to happen, that immediately sort of got my radar up, so to speak, because they were taking that prophecy in a way that we have never traditionally understood it. They were putting it into the future. Now watch uh, Joel Rosenberg very carefully here as he tries to do this. This is a quote we had up earlier. He says, Isaiah's prophecy was given to him in 715 B.C., well after the conquering of Damascus in 732 B.C., So what he is saying is this can't be a prophecy concerning Tiglath-Pileser in 732 B.C. because this prophecy was given 15 years after that fact. And where is he getting this from? He's getting this from Isaiah 14, verse 28. Notice Isaiah 14, verse 28. Notice what it says. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. So when did King Ahaz die? 715 B.C. And Rosenberg is saying, aha, 
if this prophecy was given in 715 BC, it can't be a prophecy concerning the destruction of Damascus at the hands of Tigalith Pileser that happened over 15 years earlier. And your average person would, would read that and listen to that and hear that and say the gentleman has a point. But here's what he's not telling you. When God says in Isaiah 14 verse 28, in the year King Ahaz died, this oracle came, he is not making a statement or a date for all of the prophecies in the table of nations. See that? This is where Rosenberg is misleading his audience. He's giving you the impression from Isaiah 14, verse 28, that the whole table of nations was given after Assyria was destroyed, by uh, Damascus was destroyed by Tiglath-Pileser in 732. And he's basing that on Isaiah 14, verse 28. But here's the reality of the situation. Isaiah 14, verse 28, and the date that's given there, doesn't apply to the whole table of nations. It only applies to the prophecies concerning Philistia. So when Isaiah 14, verse 28 says, In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Isaiah is not saying, okay, the whole table of nations, chapters 13 through 28, including Damascus, is 715 B.C. No, he's saying only the prophecy concerning Philistia is 715 B.C. And so if you have a prophecy given in 715 B.C. concerning Philistia, that does not mean that every single prophecy in the table of nations is a 715 B.C. prophecy. I'm hoping I'm making some kind of sense up here. Wait a minute, Pastor. Hold the phone. Don't you teach that Babylon is going to be rebuilt? Don't you teach that Isaiah 13 and 14 are futuristic concerning Babylon? And yes, I do teach that. And if Isaiah 13 and 14 are futuristic concerning Babylon, then obviously Isaiah 17 is futuristic concerning Babylon too, right? Wrong. It's wrong because there is language concerning Babylon in Isaiah 13 and 14 that you do not find in Isaiah 17 not the least of which is the word forever. See, Isaiah 13 and 14, and I'll show you the verses in just a minute, when it predicts that Babylon would be destroyed, it says it will be destroyed forever. Since Babylon has never been destroyed forever, it must be yet future. Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 does not use the word forever. Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 opens the door for a temporary destruction of Damascus and for Damascus to be rebuilt. Now, if Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 said forever, and it doesn't say forever in the Hebrew text, then you could treat Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 differently than Isaiah 13 and 14. See, this is um, what we would call detailed study of the Bible, where I am looking at all of these prophecies on a case-by-case basis, and I'm making a determination from the text as to which ones are yet future and which ones have already happened. That is not happening with the now, near, or next prophecies crowd. They're putting all of it in the future. Now, some of you might be reading out of certain Bible versions. I think the King James might say this, or the New King James might say this, and it will say something to this effect. But yes, but Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 does say forever in the LXX. 
What is the LXX? It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament created a couple of centuries before the time of Christ. And yes, in some versions of the LXX, the Septuagint, it does use the word forever, but that doesn't mean anything. Because God did not inspire the LXX. What God, all, all the LXX is, is a translation from Hebrew into Greek. It's like reading the NIV, NASB, KJV. Now, we don't believe that our English translations are inspired by God, right? Now, King James-only people do think their translation is inspired by God. We don't believe that. What we believe is they are, for the most part, very good translations of the original, but they're not inspired by God. And that's how you look at the LXX. The LXX can throw in the word forever all you want, but forever, which is the Greek word olam, forever, which is used of the Babylon prophecies, is not found in Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 in the Hebrew Hebrew text. So what people are trying to do is they want you to think that Damascus's destruction is forever. And since we have a Damascus today, this prophecy has never been fulfilled. So notice, if you will, the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 2. It says, and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus. Notice Acts 9, verse 8. Saul got up from the ground, and and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. This is the New Testament now. Acts 9, verse 19, it says, And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus. Uh, Notice Acts 9, verse 27. But Barnabas took hold of him and brought him to the apostles and the disciples and described to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had talked to him and how at Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. Now, when I was at this conference in Canada, the gentleman that was promoting this idea said, look, the New Testament mentions Damascus all of the time. Acts chapter 9, the Damascus road. And therefore, Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 has never been fulfilled. That's what he said. And because Isaiah 17, verses 1 and 2 has never been fulfilled, it's going to be fulfilled any second. In fact, it's going to be the fuse that ignites the Gog-Magog vision of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And people listen to that, and it sounds true. Sounds biblical. Except one little problem. Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 never says Damascus will be destroyed forever. Which opens the door to the idea that there has been a past destruction of Damascus already fulfilled. And because the Bible never says Damascus will be destroyed forever, it leaves the door open to Damascus coming back to life. The prophecies of Babylon don't allow that possibility. Prophecies of Damascus do. And because this particular speaker was not going into detail, just sort of in a very cursory fashion, throwing Bible verses together, the audience of, gosh, there must have been two, three thousand people at least at this conference was all swept into this sort of, I would call it deception, excitement. I'm not challenging the motives of people that do this. I'm saying they're, they're, they're running footloose and fancy free with God's word. 
And the last time I checked, God doesn't like it when we do that. That's why it says things in the book of Revelation like if you add, God will add to you the curses in this book. And if you take away from the book, God will take away your place from the tree of life. Uh, I don't know how you interpret it, interpret that. I interpret it as God is pretty serious about his word. He does not like distortions of his word, either from replacement theologians or hyper-speculative sensationalists. It doesn't matter from which camp the distortion comes. God does not like it. God does not appreciate it. God does not approve it. How is the prophecies of Babylon different? Look at Isaiah 13, 20 through 22. This is language that you will not find in the Damascus prophecy. Concerning Babylon, when it falls, it will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Isaiah 17 doesn't say that, does it? Nor will Arab pitch his tent there. Nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there. But desert creatures will lie down there and their houses will be full of owls. Ostriches, ostriches, there we go, also will live there and shaggy goats, hyenas will howl in their fortified towers and jackals in their luxurious places. Her fateful time also will soon come and her days will not be prolonged. What Isaiah is saying, particularly in verse 20, is when Babylon falls, her fall is going to be so catastrophic that the city itself will never be rebuilt. That's why I'm very confident that Isaiah 13 and 14 has never happened yet, because it does not fit the known facts of history concerning Babylon. Babylon has to be brought back to life so it can be destroyed exactly like God says in bold judgment number seven. Not so Damascus. Damascus, it just says it's going to be destroyed. It never says it'll never be rebuilt. Look at, if you could, Jeremiah chapter 50. And notice, if you will, verse 3. More prophecies concerning Babylon. For nation has come up against her out of the north. Interestingly, Babylon in history was an attack from the north. She was attacked from the east. It will make her land an object horror, and there will be no inhabitant in it. Both man and beast have wandered off. They have gone away. Look at Jeremiah 50. Look at verse 13. Because of the indignation of the Lord, she will not be inhabited when Babylon falls, but she will be completely desolate. Everyone who passes by Babylon will be horrified and will hiss because of her wounds. Look at Jeremiah 50, verse 26. Same chapter. Come out of her from the furthest border, open her arms, pile her up like kings, and utterly destroy her. Let nothing be left of her. Look at Jeremiah 50, look at verses 39 and 40. Same chapter. Therefore, the desert creatures will live there along with the jackals. The ostriches will also live in it, and it will never again be inhabited or dwelt from generation to generation. Look at next chapter, Jeremiah 51. Look at verse 29. So the land quakes and writhes for the purposes of the Lord against Babylon's stand to make the land of Babylon 
a desolation without inhabitants. Look at Jeremiah 51, look at verse uh, 43. Her cities will become an object of horror, a parched land and a desert, a land in which no man lives and through which no son of man passes. Look at Jeremiah 51, look at verse 62. And say, O Lord, you, O Lord, have promised concerning this place to cut it off so that there will be nothing dwelling in it, whether man or beast, but it will be a perpetual, perpetual desolation. Um, look, if you will, at Jeremiah 51 and look at verse 26. Watch this. They will not take from you even a stone for a corner nor a stone for the foundations, but you will be desolate for how long? Forever. Now that word forever is a big deal because that word is actually used to describe God himself. It's the Greek word, excuse me, the Hebrew word olam in Psalm 90 verse 2. Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting Olam to everlasting you are God. In other words, what God is saying is when I bring down Babylon, her destruction is going to be so complete that she'll never be rebuilt again. She'll never be inhabited again. And in fact, you won't even be able to take bricks and things that were used to construct Babylon to begin with, and you're not going to be able to use them in another building somewhere because the destruction of Babylon will be so comprehensive. Now, how do I interpret these prophecies? Well, that's Revelation 16, verse 19. That's the seventh bull judgment, which completely and totally destroys Babylon. So I have no problem taking Jeremiah 50 and 51, Isaiah 13 and 14, and putting it into the future. i got a problem with doing that with Damascus, because Damascus, Isaiah 17, 1 and 2, does not use that language. It doesn't even use the Hebrew word olam. And I'm here to tell you that Babylon was never destroyed, like the Bible says. Herodotus, writing within a century of Babylon's fall to the Persians, says he, that Cyrus, made the former course of the river passable by the sinking of a stream. The stream having sunk so far, it reached about the middle of a man's thigh. Those Babylonians, now this is speaking of how Babylon fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. Those Babylonians who dwelt in the middle did not know they had been captured. There was no catastrophe when Babylon fell to the Persians in 539 B.C. And because God means what he says and says what he means, that means these prophecies are yet future where Babylon has to be restored to life and destroyed in the seventh bowl judgment. No problem there. Uh, This is um, something that you can check out from my library if you want. I've been saying that for 10 years, and nobody has checked it out yet. But it's called the Ancient Near East Texts Anit, which is a translation from ancient languages into English, of ancient texts, and one of the things that's translated here is the Cyrus Cylinder, where Cyrus, the king of Persia, is boasting about how he conquered Babylon. He says here, without any battle, the troops rejoicing in peace. He didn't allow any of the deities to be terrorized partly because Cyrus was a a polytheist and he didn't want to upset the Babylonian gods. 
He made permanent sanctuaries for the Babylonian deities. They were unharmed. I resettled them all in a peaceful place. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that when the Persians conquered Babylon in 539 B.C., the language of Isaiah 13 and 14, the language of Jeremiah 50 and 51 was never fulfilled. So I'm entirely comfortable taking those chapters and putting them into the future. You can't do that with Damascus because Damascus doesn't use this language. It never says of Damascus, when it falls, it will never be rebuilt again. So it it could have been destroyed by Tiglath-Pileser, 732 B.C., and then rebuilt by the time of Paul. Now, if that's true, that ruins the prophetic scenario that people are trying to develop about the destruction of Damascus being the fuse which ignites the battle of Gog and Magog. Dr. John Walford says, as far as the historic fulfillment is concerned, it is obvious from both scripture and history that these verses, Babylon, have not been literally fulfilled. He goes on and he talks about how the city of Babylon continued in some form or substance until A.D. 1000 and did not, and did not, and did not experience a sudden termination such as anticipated in this prophecy, Jeremiah 50 and 51, Isaiah 13 and 14. Not so Damascus. Damascus never uses the word forever. The Damascus prophecy never uses the word forever. Now the LXX, much later after the fact, throws in the word forever into the Greek translation, but that's not what Isaiah 17, 1 and 2 says. So what is the BLT? Bottom line time. When you're looking at the table of nations concerning the destruction of various nations in the end times, you cannot take an all-or-nothing approach. You can't say, well, Babylon is future, so therefore Damascus has to be future. When you do that, you're mixing apples and oranges. You have to look at these prophecies on a case-by-case basis. And as I've tried to show you today, and I'll only give you 10% of my arguments, believe it or not. That Babylon's destruction is yet future, but Damascus's destruction already happened 700 years before the time of Christ. That prophecy's already been fulfilled. And so when you see Damascus in the headlines, don't think, oh no, Isaiah 17 is going to be fulfilled any moment. So with all of that being said, I'm hoping some of it made sense. Can I get a thumbs up from anybody that understands? Okay, praise the Lord. Let me close in prayer. Father, we're grateful for your word, grateful for today. Um, I do ask that you'll be with us in the main service as we continue in the book of Genesis. Help us to rightfully divide your word correctly in these last days. We'll be careful to give you all the praise and the glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name and God's people said. Happy mini-intermission.